Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. And feel free to drop any and all questions you might have for me in the comments section, and I will pick them up. Um, but my preferred way of getting them, just so you guys know, it makes it a lot easier if you just email them to me. Uh, so the email address, of course, is in the description section of this and every video I post. Askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right. Hey, everybody. I hope you got a chance to check out my podcast yesterday with John Atack. I had a lot of fun talking with him for a good long time about our concerns about artificial intelligence and the development of it. And this is just one of many concerns and many interests and many, you know, there's a lot of spoons in that soup. And this podcast does not pretend to be, uh, you know, an overview of everything wrong or everything possibly wrong with AI. But it, it was uh, from, from my sort of psych-oriented perspective, I wanted to contribute to that Conversation, put some food for thought out there for you guys, and I hope you'll check it out. Um, also, let's see. Oh, yeah, Friday show. We covered the Danny Masterson uh, discovery leak that occurred this week. Big bombshell news uh, in the Danny Masterson trial. The uh, looks like the defense and the prosecution have both rested their cases. So we will have closing arguments next week, and uh, Tony and I will be talking about that on Monday as usual. So... Uh, let's see, that all being said, I wanted to put a quick plug in for support for the channel. I very much could use it and very much appreciate it when it happens. The Patreon supporters that I have and the supporters I have here on YouTube, there's channel memberships now turned on. There's a join button right below this video you can click on. Um, the support means everything, and it really does help to keep the show going and the lights on and all of that. So put that plug out there for you and also let you know that I am always available for consultation. Consultation. I do not do therapy. I'm not that kind of psychologist, but I do consultation. I will give advice, direction, education, and support to anybody who needs help, either with uh, family or friends who are involved in a cultic or coercive situation or somebody who is trying to recover from such a situation. I can give some advice and direction on that. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> before we get into the questions, there are a couple here that are very long. We'll get to those a little bit later in the show, but um, I've been holding off on answering them because they are so lengthy, but I think uh, I think you'll find them interesting anyway, so just to prep you that that's coming. But first, a few short ones to start with. Here we go. Rob Kupietz, when people are being audited, do any remember back to the Xenu days? I would think, as the Xenu story is more or less public knowledge, someone would claim to have known him in a past life. All right, Rob, thank you very much for this question. And the fact is that the Xenu story is well known in the public knowledge outside of Scientology. You got, you know, Scientologists do not look at this stuff. I, you know, even me uh, at the end of my days, I was avoiding anything having to do with any kind of high-level confidential information in Scientology. And I'll remind everybody that this is information that Scientologists truly believe will harm their spiritual progress if they are exposed to it before they are ready for it. This is really important to understand because it's the reason why they will police themselves. They don't have to have somebody standing over them telling them, oh, don't look at that. Don't watch that South Park. Don't look at that anti-Scientology material. This is thought policing 
to a masterclass level where you convince people, Scientologists in this case, that there is information or knowledge or, or lore or words that are dangerous to them, that their mere exposure to this knowledge could significantly, materially harm their progress and their future. It's that kind of thing. It sort of uh, calls back to um, the Cthulhu mythos and the Necronomicon, you know, H.P. Lovecraft stories where, you know, merely looking upon the, the, the lore or, you know, peering into the extra-dimensional worlds of the Cthulhu world, you would be driven insane. You just wouldn't be able to deal with the with the uh, sort of the geometry and the and the symbols and the knowledge that you would be exposed to. It's beyond human comprehension, and it will destroy your mind. This is this is not just thinking that's uh, original to L. Ron Hubbard. This is this is old story lore, and this is old metaphysics lore and spirituality lore and stuff. That there are things that are too dangerous for people to know. Uh, without preparation, without having gone along the path, without having become an ascended master where you are now capable of dealing with this higher level information. And it's in that spirit that Scientology and OT3 and the Xenu story sits. Um, the other thing about this to know in Scientology's lore is that it is inaccessible. Not only is it that you don't want to expose yourself too early to this information, but also you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to guess at it, imagine it, or recall it. This is, this is another important bedrock piece of information about Scientology you should understand is that um, L. Ron Hubbard said that this particular incident, this, this whole genocide that Xenu engaged in and dragged everybody to Tegiak, which is Earth, and destroyed them and then implanted them with weeks of pictures and sounds and feelings to make them forget to put a cloak of invisibility around the entire incident so it would simply be inaccessible in your memory. Um, and, and this is actually what Hubbard was saying was the big discovery that he made was he figured out how to penetrate that barrier, how to break through that veil and discover the actual unknowable knowledge. And this is another reason why Scientologists will, um, will not only want to avoid anything about it, but also feel that they, that they really can't know it. And this is not broadly talked about in Scientology. This isn't the sort of thing that you really understand until you do the level. But when you have no concept of what's on that level, then of course you're not going to be able to imagine it or guess at it. I don't know anybody who would guess at the Xenu story. It's so outlandish and so specific and so, you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbardarian, <laughs> if, I if I may, um, that nobody in Scientology puts two and two together. And let me say that I tried. As a low-level Scientologist, as a clear Scientologist, um, I was desperate to learn when I was in Scientology what the OT levels were all about. And I guessed and guessed and guessed, man. I went through so many issues and bulletins and lectures from the time period right up to and before 
the OT levels were created because I wanted to figure it out. I figured, well, shit, Hubbard figured it out. Maybe in these materials there are some clues, especially when Scientologists, high-level Scientologists, would tell me as a low-level Scientologist, oh, you're going you're gonna to see that all of it is right in front of you. When you get to these OT levels, one thing I was told by a couple different people over the years is OTs would tell me, oh, it's all there. All the information you're, that, that, that is there is, is in the lower levels, but you don't know how to put it all together. You don't know. You're not looking at it with the right perspective, and you can't. You, you, just, you just don't have the OT perspective to be able to interpret these materials the way that um, they are on the OT levels. And they would you know, barely go that far in telling me what was on the OT levels. Nobody will ever breathe a word to you about Xenu or body thetans. These are absolutely verboten terms in Scientology. You would you'd pretty much get expelled for saying them. I mean, you get in a lot of trouble. They do not mess around with this stuff. So while it is public knowledge in the world, if someone came into Scientology, having been exposed to that information, and then in an auditing session started blabbing about how they knew Xenu, um, the OTs in Scientology would immediately red flag that, and, um, and there would be security checking in that person's future. They would be asking them many sharp and pointed questions about how do they know about Xenu? What did they hear? What did they read? And they wouldn't accept no for an answer. They would keep digging until this person said something because no one is supposed to be capable of remembering or talking about Xenu. It's supposed to be, again, it's supposed to be cloaked. Those memories, uh, they're just, there's just a big block on them, if you will. And that's kind of how Scientologists uh, at the OT levels understand that material. So that's why the answer to your question, Rob, is no, nobody's going to remember that. They will remember things prior to the Xenu story, and they will remember things after the Xenu story. It's just that narrative that is blocked off. You can remember other stuff, lots and lots and lots of other stuff, and Scientology is open to the idea of going back, you know, the Xenu story is only 75 million years ago. Scientologists recall things back trillions of years ago, hundreds of trillions of years ago. The uh, incident one in Scientology, the the um, original entrance into this physical universe of space-time, was four quadrillion years ago. <laughs> now, that's also a confidential figure. Most Scientologists don't know that, but it gives you latitude to remember things as far back as you basically want to imagine you know because for what's four quadrillion years that is you know that's an un, incomprehensible number for human beings if you really start trying to break it down and think about it it's just a lot of zeros on a piece of paper and so anything and everything that you could possibly imagine ever having happened to you whether in this universe or some other universe or some other dimension or some other reality all of it could be credibly thought of to have happened within those four quadrillion years. <laughs> so that's kind of how, you know, the Scientology memory thing works going back in time. And I hope that makes it a little clearer. There you go. Logamug. Do you have any idea why the book Scientology, A History of Man, is part of the basics of Scientology? It seems like an odd one out. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of the basics because it's a book that couldn't be gotten rid of. 
Um, the basics cover all of the um, basic texts of Scientology, but the word basic is a little bit of a misnomer here in that it doesn't mean simple or the fundamentals of Scientology. It's this is the bedrock upon which Scientology is built. These books, the information in them from Dianetics, Modern Science of Mental Health, which was the first one through Science of Survival, uh, Advanced Procedure and Axioms, uh, Self-Analysis, Creation of Human Ability, Handbook for Preclears. This is all the early books. And then you get to History of Man and you get to Scientology 880 and Scientology 8808. And um, oh boy, then you get to the Dynamics 55, Fundamentals of Thought, Problems of Work. All of these books are part of the basics. This is the fundamentals on which Scientology are built. And History of Man absolutely has information in it upon which Scientology is still built. You know, the Hymn of Asia book is a book that was not part of that was not made part of the basics. They wanted to get rid of that because uh, the Buddhists came to flag and uh, and the whole thing was a bit of a PR fiasco and uh, the, and L. Ron Hubbard claiming to be Matea and all of that is just a big joke and I think that was kind of revealed to Scientology at a level where they were like, oh, we got to stop talking about this because nobody talks about history about him of Asia anymore. Um, that book has just kind of been relegated off to the side and forgotten about and yet it's a whole book by Hubbard. Uh, claiming he is this reincarnation of the Buddha. Um, there are other books. There's Have You Lived Before This Life. This was a compendium of case notes or studies, uh, case, not case studies, really case notes, from auditing that was done, I think 1957, at one of the advanced clinical courses, where they compiled all of these past life stories of very interesting stuff, thinking this was going to be very marketable and people would be very interested in this. And this was featured in regular bookstores, not just Scientology bookstores. And uh, that book has been relegated to the scrap heap. You don't hear about that. They don't produce it anymore. They don't talk about it. It wasn't an L. Ron Hubbard book, strictly speaking. But then again, many of them are not. They are just, as uh, John Atak has pointed out, they are just compendiums or compilations of L. Ron Hubbard materials that were put together elsewise. For example, the Introduction to Scientology Ethics book. That's not just a book. It's, a, just a com it's just a compilation of policy letters and bulletins that Hubbard wrote. Um, he didn't put it all together from beginning to end and go, okay, here's ethics and justice in Scientology. They just compiled them from the policies. Um, it's that kind of thing, right? So that's why uh, History of Man, as wild and crazy and even debunked as some of the information in it is, that's why they've had to keep it. The information about uh, the evolutionary line, about the genetic entity, this is information that is barely used in Scientology anymore. They really don't think too much with it. It's sort of, I don't know the word for it. It's not, it's not that it is not true or it's invalidated. It's more like it's not even it, maybe minutia might be the word. It's it, you know, it's kind of deep lore. Um, and Scientologists, sometimes their head hurts a little bit trying to figure out how to put that, some of the information in History of Man together with certain other information. But once you get to the OT levels, for example, you learn about body thetans. And body thetans are analogous in History of Man to what Hubbard refers to as the entities.
And he talks about entities in your body and how these exist and that these will talk to you and things like that. And he does not refer to them as body thetans and he hella does not talk about Xenu or any of that implanting or the genocide. He just says that these things exist. And later on, right, Scientologists kind of retcon this 1952 book called History of Man to the 1967 Xenu narrative and go, ah, see, Hubbard knew about the body thetans all the way back in 1952, right? And of course he didn't. He was just throwing stuff on the wall to see what would stick. And entities ended up being something as a concept that he returned to much later. Between 1952 and 1967, there's hardly anything being talked about with entities and no auditing being done on this. There's nothing addressing entities directly or specifically, not in the mainline Scientology, uh, and certainly not on the modern grade charts. So uh, this is what I mean by it's kind of, it, it takes on the status more of, of back lore or something. Um, but that's, you know, but it's still, it's useful for Scientologists and the basic information in history of man is still true to the fundamentals of Scientology. So anyway, there's, uh, there's your answer. Sayok. I can't, for the life of me, get a normal non-Scientology answer to this. I keep seeing this book in association with Scientology Fundamentals of Thought and DMSMH. What the hell really is Dianetics 55? All right, so here's the deal. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health in May 1950, or published it in May 1950. And for the next um, year and a half or so, he proceeded to bankrupt the entire movement twice. Um, And he got a bailout um, uh, by a man named Purcell. He was a a millionaire in Kansas, and he thought L. Ron Hubbard was on to something, and Purcell was interested in pursuing knowledge of the mind and spirit and all of that. And so he bailed Hubbard out of his bankruptcy and his financial difficulties. And he then shared or, you know, got, up, uh, prop, got ownership of the uh, rights to the work of Dianetics and the word Dianetics. This was all now something that Purcell owned. And he was basically... Um, I don't know, steak horsing. <laughs> he was basically, uh, you know, uh, being Hubbard's sugar daddy for a little while because Hubbard was destitute and couldn't keep uh, two pennies together for very long. He spent money as fast as he could get it. It literally just was like water through his hands. Uh, he, he was just horrible with money. And um, so what ended up happening is he and Purcell in uh, 1951, late 51, early 52, I think it was, uh, had a bit of a falling out, and uh, and Purcell really didn't like Hubbard, and Hubbard really didn't like Purcell. He didn't like being told what to do. He didn't want somebody else contributing to his to Hubbard's. Uh, you know, Hubbard didn't want anybody telling him how to write or what to write, or didn't want anybody uh, influencing him. <laughs> ironically. And so they had a breaking off, and Hubbard uh, no longer owned the rights to the word Dianetics or to uh, any of the, the works of it. And that's one of the big reasons why Scientology had to come into existence, is he had to come up with another subject. And this is where uh, this sort of, you know, with Science of Survival and through 1951, there was this gradual shift towards spirituality or theta, this theta quantity, this, this non 
uh, physical, spiritual, life force kind of thing. And so uh, Hubbard started shifting the attention and the priority or, or um, you know, the emphasis on, science, uh, on the subject became Scientology, became this new subject of the spirit and of, and of theta. Um, then he moved to Phoenix, Arizona and set up uh, the original uh, Scientology organizations there. And uh, then I think it was in 53, he actually formally set up the Church of Scientology at the end of, and, and the end of 1953. So the subject was now Scientology, and he was trying to take the small number of people who were still following him along for the ride of, no, we're not doing the science of the mind now, now we're doing this philosophical, religious sort of thing. And there was a lot of resistance to it, and a lot of people fell off the line, but other people were attracted by the religious philosophy component that Hubbard was offering. And this was how the movement was was built around until 1955. Because Hubbard didn't give up on getting Dianetics back. He wanted it back, and he pestered and basically kind of fair-gamed uh, Don Purcell until Purcell finally gave up and was like, fine, you can just, here, take it all back, right? And he kind of shifted onto something else and dropped Dianetics as a topic and gave it back to Hubbard. And Hubbard then had rights again to the word Dianetics and to the subject of Dianetics. And that was in 1954. I think that that all went down. And he wrote the book Dianetics 55, or rather he dictated it. And uh, this is where, this is why Dianetics 55, exclamation point, because it was back. We're back. Dianetics is back. And yet, what is it? Well, it's a book that has nothing to do with Dianetics. The book is all about communication. And it's about objective processing. And it's about the communication formula and how you, how you would use these more Scientological principles in your auditing. But he was really happy to get the rights to Dianetics back. So he called this book Dianetics 55. It's a, and, and I think he was trying to sort of show that Dianetics was no longer this book one material. It was now this new... Scientology material because Hubbard was now picking up steam with the whole spiritual religious philosophy aspect of what he was doing and the science of the mind thing was kind of relegated to the back seat. It wasn't forgotten, it wasn't erased, and it wasn't um, necessarily trying to be retconned as such. He wasn't trying to rewrite book one or deny it existed. He was just trying to say, well, this is what we're doing with it now. And we're on this progressive path of research and development, and this is what we find to be true now. And this is what's reflected in the book Dynamics 55. And that's basically the, the story with that. Martin. I recently heard your podcast with Steve Kinane and was very fond of it. However, from a European and German perspective, I'd like to argue a bit against the universal freedom of speech chant you both so happily agreed upon after discarding the Australian ban on the Church of Scientology. Freedom of speech surely is a powerful and necessary concept, and it has its merits, but it is not as simple as it seems. Nobody has total freedom of speech, as there are always restrictions." Public libel and slander are illegal everywhere and cannot be justified by arguing freedom of speech. Stakes may be high to prove it, but Anglo-Saxon and especially U.S. justice makes it easy to claim threatening financial compensations. This risk alone may lead to a kind of preemptive censorship, which in effect is contradicting freedom of speech, reminding me of a German journalist proverb that would translate as a pair of scissors in your head. 
In contrast, most Central European justice systems have broader legal limitations and may be more willing to dispute statements in speech or writing. But penalties for breaking those laws begin very low, a few hundred euro fine, and compensations are only rarely awarded on an also low basis, taking only proven damages into account. Severe sentences are very rare, but possible if a person or an organization stubbornly doesn't refrain from repeating such acts again and again. On this basis, Central European countries have laws against defamatory hate speech directed upon minorities, religious, ethical, gender, etc., which I deem prudent. For me, and probably most Europeans, such arguments are a kind of libel or slander against a group of people instead of a single person or a business or entity. Isn't it a bit curious that in the Anglo-Saxon justice, a business or a so-called church has more rights to defend itself than a minority of humans? In Germany, Austria, and for weird reasons I don't know, Switzerland and Spain, those or similar laws also specifically prohibit national socialist propaganda and Holocaust denial, with some countries also regulating display of a few national socialist emblems like swastikas. I understand this is out of history, but I'm no big fan of this legislation as it naturally bears the hallmarks of cementing truth by statute. Nevertheless, I do support the idea to limit freedom of speech if it is used to defame individuals, entities, or clearly defined groups of people. And in my critical thinking, I don't see plausible arguments to feel our overall freedom limited by that. I would be interested in your thoughts. Okay, really big subject and really big question. And as you can see, I've sat on that one for a little while because it is so long and I wanted to kind of think about it a little bit. But of course, I've sat here and soapboxed and sort of, um, you know, talked about freedom of speech and, and my views about it. And I don't know I need to repeat all of that again. So instead today, I thought I might talk about this from the perspective of cults and loaded language and freedom of speech and what these things, I, how I sort of think about what these things might have to do with each other. Cult leaders or narcissists or predators or, you know, people who want to take advantage of others will use language to do so. It's a very powerful tool. Language is how we think. Language is how we interpret the world. Language is how we talk with ourselves. Language is how we communicate with others. It's, uh, it's symbols. It's sounds. It's, um, it, but it's a lot more than symbols and sounds. It's all of the significance and experience that is wrapped up in those symbols and sounds that make it so significant to us. These also change over time. Yesterday's definitions of words are not today's and won't be tomorrow's. Uh, narcissism, for example, has now been watered down to basically mean an egotistical person, and that is not what a narcissist is. But in common vernacular, that's how it's used. And uh, gaslighting is not just lying to somebody. Gaslighting is an actual campaign of manipulation and psychological abuse. But if you lie to somebody now, oh, you're gaslighting me. You know, so these words can be watered down and, again, change over time as they're used. And this, I think, is, is my, one of my, you know, the basis of today's argument from me as to why freedom of speech needs to be as wide a road as possible. Because we need to be able to fight back against how words can be manipulated or utilized to enforce how people think about things. 1984 comes to mind, freedom is slavery, right? This kind of thing. We can redefine words. This is propaganda 101. And by redefining words, we get whole social movements that can be pushed in very destructive directions uh, through the use of wordplay. Uh, but also, 
also through the through the restricted use of these sounds and symbols by by denying or banning the right to use certain signs or symbols of language we try to curb or control people's thinking and thereby control their behavior and we can see by neo-nazis and white supremacist movements that thrive to this day that such efforts are pretty useless um, they are. I, I don't mean to say that there shouldn't be any restrictions on language or on symbols, because I agree that we shouldn't allow uh, just an, a free pass on things like Holocaust denial, and we shouldn't allow Nazis to just walk brazenly and openly around preaching their, you know, their hate dogma. I don't think that that's a really good idea for you know third graders to be hearing. So, of course, we are always going to restrict these things. Now, I've already made the argument, and I'll just remind everybody and say again, I already know there is no such thing as ultimate freedom of speech or unlimited freedom of speech. There's not one single human being anywhere who believes in complete unlimited freedom of speech. And if you were to find such any human being who was saying unlimited freedom of speech at all costs, at every corner, no matter what, no matter who, no matter what the context, you're dealing with a crazy person. Period. End of story. Because it's obvious that there are all kinds of circumstances where certain words, certain ideas, and certain um, symbols are just completely inappropriate and, in fact, immoral and even, you know, and that's why we make them illegal. Uh, so, because they can drive behavior in very, very destructive ways. So where do we draw those lines in the sand? That's the hard part. That's the difficult $10,000 question is uh, because what's offensive, you know, at, at offense, oh, that's offensive to me? Hell no, absolutely not. We must not ever be banning words or curbing language because somebody finds it offensive. And my argument very simply for that, before everybody loses their mind, is Scientology finds my channel offensive. So do the JWs, so do the Mormons, so do every other cult I've ever exposed. And because they find it offensive, if there were laws on the books, that offensive speech must be shut down. And we're already going way too far in that direction here on YouTube. Then my channel, my exposure of their abuses gets shut down. We don't want that. I think anybody who's following this channel would understand immediately why. So again, where do we draw this line in the sand? It's not easy to figure that out. It, but it cannot be over somebody's taking offense or the so-called hate speech. I hate that term. <laughs> hate speech. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> the reason I hate it is because the word hate, as I'm demonstrating right now, is subjective. It is wholly in your mind as to whether you strongly dislike or hate a thing or think something is hateful. It's the same degree of subjectivity as being offended. It's just to a higher level. And we cannot curb other people's behavior or actions or speech based on what we think of as hateful. That doesn't, that's no. You don't get to do that if you're claiming that freedom of speech is a value and freedom of thought and freedom of motion and freedom of belief. If these are values that are important to you, then you must allow people to think and say what's on their mind, regardless of how offensive or hateful you might think it is. 
This is really important because, you know, the wrong groups get into power. Okay, like the Nazis. Nazis get into power. Suddenly, everything anybody says against the Nazis is hate speech, and they're free to go make the lines all the way to the gas chambers and line people up. So do we, so you see the, the relative argument I'm making here, the relativity argument. So this is, this is an important thing to understand. It's not just about your offense or what you think is wrong. It's about what other people also think because the tables can be turned on you just like that. So this is why these freedoms are so important and why we have to allow this wide latitude of this freedom, even if we find things that people are saying hateful or offensive. That cannot be the basis on which we shut them down. It is their actions that we shut down, not their words. Their actions. It's what they do. It's not their beliefs. We can't touch their beliefs. Beliefs are in people's heads. You will never, ever, ever, ever be able to regulate or control belief. And you'll never, ever, ever be able to ban belief which is why banning Scientology or banning cults is ridiculous. It just makes people into martyrs and it just drives attention to a thing because people all universally, we, the reason we call them universal human rights is because people universally understand and know and feel that they need these things. They need freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of speech. They yearn for these things and when they don't have them, they will fight and resist and push and even kill to get or regain these rights. It's that important to our survival and to our conception of our identity and our purpose. So, um, you know, so there's no getting around this stuff. You can't suppress it. You can't oppress it. You can't push people into the mud. And you can't push their words or symbols into the mud. Now, all that being said, you know, here I sit going, well, yeah, but let's not have Holocaust denial or swastikas running around. Well, that goes right back to action again. Not, there's not just words, but those symbols and those ideas represent action. And we have to, um, you know, think hard about that. We have to think really hard about that. You know, in the state of Illinois, the Nazis get to march every year if they want. Right? Illinois Nazis. <laughs> reference, Blues Brothers reference there. Um, so, you know, would we rather have that and have the Nazis marching in the street than have some kind of arbitrary authoritarian control, which today is the Nazis and tomorrow is you, right? And are these slippery slope arguments? Well, maybe, <laughs> kind of, but are they? Because as we watch the progress right now in the, in the present time, as we see the various culture wars of... Um, well, I, I don't even need to name anyone specifically because every month it's something new. That's the whole point of culture wars, right? Is it's culture changing and growing and progressing, and it's the fight to resist that change versus the fight to make that change, no matter what it is, right? It's the back and forth of that, and it's going to be an endless struggle. There's always going to be these culture wars, and if we want them fought sanely and rationally, then we need to allow both sides to be able to express themselves fully and work out their differences and compromise. And the more the extreme ends rile both sides up and rile up the middle that it's all dangerous and a matter of life and death over saying words, 
or thinking certain things or doing certain things, as long as we let ourselves be manipulated that way, this, you know, this will continue to be a problem. When instead, I think we should recognize that there are such things as universal human rights, universe, as according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that's a great document. And it really lists out some great things. And, um, and I think if we recognize that more universally, it's not that we're going to have a calmer world or a more peaceful world because it causes a lot of tumult. It causes a lot of upset and confusion and, and, uh, and even stress and anxiety for people to know that there are other people in the world who maybe don't like them so much or don't want to be around them or whatever. And yet, get over it. The world is a big, diverse place and not everybody's ever going to agree with you. Now, if they want to kill you, okay, well, now we have another matter, right? But that's, again, not going to be solved by banning words or banning ideas. It just doesn't work that way. Ideas are bulletproof. They never stop. So that's, uh, so, you know, is this a big complicated mess? Yeah, of course it is. Every time, every single time. But I'd rather have a very wide lane of, of liberty and freedom to say and do and think things, then try to artificially reduce that lane, bring it down to a one-lane thing, because then everybody's on the same road, and that's called a cult. That's called authoritarian demands of control over your thoughts and your words and your beliefs. And no one wants that. I've lived that. For decades, I've lived in an environment of that. Lots of people in this world have. And it's not a good place to be. So, you know, in the either-or argument of this, we want to err in the side of too much rather than too little. And those are some of my thoughts about this, as useful or as unuseful as they may be. Uh, you asked, and so there's my answer. Continuing self-education. I have a background in philosophy and psychology, and I got interested in studying how the subconscious mind works after learning how subliminal advertising takes advantage of it at every opportunity, especially in television and magazine ads. I'm also Jewish, and I'm often called paranoid by my friends, but I get suspicious when I observe things that I think might be anti-Semitic references. Here I am referring to the two main Scientology symbols, the eight-pointed cross and the S with the two triangles. Subliminally, and perhaps not so subliminally, I look at the eight-pointed cross and see a Christian crucifix with an X over the top of it. Do you think that LRH's eight dynamics, which this cross is meant to symbolize, was an invented narrative that came after his symbol was created or copied from Aleister Crowley as a very private joke for himself? In other words, could this be a way for him to symbolize a negation of Christianity? I have heard LRH make comments that show he did not like Jesus or Christianity, but do you think this was an outward but purposely unexplained expression of that hatred? Could this symbol be a subliminal way for him to nullify a Scientologist's belief in Christianity? Perhaps this next question shows where my Jewish paranoia really kicks in. When I look at the other common symbol that Scientology uses, the S with the two triangles, I see a star of David that has been taken apart with a snake crawling through it. I have always thought that the font that is used for the word Scientology had a very sinister element to it, but I wonder if it was chosen so that the initial S looked like a creepy snake, subliminally if not consciously. 
The reason why this could be important is that many anti-Semitic writers and commentators have referred to Jews collectively as a snake, with the head being the allegedly evil rabbis and Zionists who desire to take over the world, and the body of the snake being the rest of the Jewish population. The dismantling of the Star of David into two plain triangles could be LRH's secret desire for Scientology to wrest this fictitious control from the Jewish people and their supposedly evil conspiracy. So I'm wondering, did you ever hear or read any anti-Semitic comments from LRH? Have any been recorded as the anti-Christian comments have been? Narratives always seem to come after the fact as necessary, but could the ARC and KRC explanations for the two triangles have been invented after this symbol's creation solely as a means to legitimize it and get it out there in the public's eye and subconscious? All right, as you can see, this was the other big daddy uh, long question for this week. And uh, here's my answer on this is symbols are very, very subjective. And as you've pointed out, you know, you have a bias that you are bringing to your interpretation of symbols where you see two triangles broken up as a broken up star of David. And sure enough, that absolutely could be a legitimate interpretation of what L. Ron Hubbard meant with the S and the double triangle. Absolutely. There's no way I can sit here and say, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. There was no way L. Ron Hubbard was thinking that. Because in the conspiracy theories of Scientology, there is the standard Jewish tropes. And L. Ron Hubbard names the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and various rich men and rich families and dynasties as the problem children of this world. They're the ones who control everything. They're the puppet masters behind this, you know, behind the world uh, with, uh, with everybody playing, you know, on their strings, right? Um, but he never, that I ever heard in all the years I was in Scientology, I do not recall once where he called out Judaism or called these people out because they were Jewish as the reason why they were in control or power or that it was the Jewish people who were somehow the problem. I never heard that. Now, maybe it exists in Scientology's materials. I didn't listen to all 5,000 lectures or read the thousands of pages of materials. I read a lot, and I listened to a lot, but I, didn't, I can't claim to have gone through all of it. And again, all the conspiratorial tropes are there. So if you want to look for and find anti-Semitism in Scientology, it's there in the conspiracy theories to be interpreted that way. But given the fact that he did not call out the Jewish people or Judaism as a problem, the same way he called out Christianity, at least not in my experience, and Hubbard was explicit about about Catholicism and about Christianity and about how even the very symbols of those religions were installed or implanted in our memory, our collective memories, during the whole Xenu story. Uh, He said that's the source of religion on this planet, or one of the sources of it, and that religion is a control operation. But he didn't then say Islam is a control operation or Judaism is a control operation. He was really, a lot of his emphasis was on Christianity and sometimes on Catholicism. So, uh, you know, as a subsection of Christianity. 
Um, so, so that's my experience from within Scientology. However, now let me address the bigger question here of, you know, the S, the, the, the cross with the X on it and the, and the symbol of the S and the double triangle. Do these or could these have double or triple meanings or something? Oh, absolutely. Of course they could. Hubbard was always, you know, kind of he, 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 you know, to himself all the time about what he was getting away with in plain sight. And I talked, uh, I think, a week or two ago um, about the uh, Rosie Cross and how the uh, Scientology Cross has its derivation in Rosicrucianism and in the Order of the Golden Dawn and the OTO and Aleister Crowley's use of it. And so we find, a, you know, that we can look at this from a lot of different layers. We can say, well, yeah, there's that, but is it also this big X on top of a cross. It's a legit observation and a legitimate interpretation of that symbol in Scientology because look what Hubbard did with it. He said religion's bad as a control operation. Uh, the religions on this planet are meant to manipulate and control you and keep you in a prison of belief. Ironically, he made that claim about those. He didn't use those words, but that concept. Um, you know, he makes that claim about all the other major religions or about the, you know, the biggest religion in the United States, Christianity, uh, while he's trying to set up the same thing, you know, and this is the kind of double meaning and, and, and this kind of thing and hidden meanings that are, that are rife through Scientology. This is the occult stuff and it's all there if you care to look. And this is all again, a matter of interpretation, we see these symbols, we look at L. Ron Hubbard's background, and we go, well, it's not hard to connect these dots. They're pretty clear, especially when you add in L. Ron Hubbard's personal writings, his, uh, his affirmations, you realize that this man absolutely had occult beliefs, and he was engaged in occult practices. And so building a system, uh, a religious philosophy, around these symbols and around these concepts uh, from Aleister Crowley and from spiritualism and all of that you know, not hard to connect all of those dots together. So is it plausible that these symbols have other meanings? Yeah, absolutely they do. But we have to be careful, now that we've said all that, we have to be careful to not go too far with this. Just because you can see it in a symbol doesn't mean that's what the author intended. And um, that doesn't mean you're not seeing it or that your interpretation doesn't maybe have something to do with the subject, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what Hubbard intended with the S and double triangle, for example. And I think that the ARC and KRC triangles have a lot more to do with uh, control and manipulation of people than just something as a convenience to justify the broken up star of David. I don't, I don't think it's that... Uh, quite that simple of an explanation there. I think those two triangles and the whole concept of that has more to do with how Hubbard wanted to manipulate people. So I don't know. That's just kind of my take on it. It's all very kind of general. This is this is kind of the gray area of Scientology interpretation and analysis where there are no certain answers because uh, Hubbard's not around to tell us anymore <laughs> if we're right or wrong. But um, but this is my this, these are some of my thoughts on it. So, you know, make of that what you will. Michael Yoder. In a lecture to auditors, 1955, LRH talks a lot about misownership. In the last part of the lecture, he says that one can get, quote, solidity by misownership. And he talks about running the ownership process. Besides gobbledygook, what does that mean? 
All right, Michael, thank you for this. And if you've been listening closely to my answers from the last few weeks uh, to your technical queries, uh, then you know that ownership is something very important in Scientology. It is basically synonymous with responsibility in that you are, if you own a thing, if you take responsibility for a thing fully and completely, you own it. And if you own it, you have the power of uh, creation or destruction of it. Uh, this is where we go back to what I was talking about a couple weeks ago, uh, and I'm sorry I have to back refer you to an earlier answer here, but um, but I'm not gonna. I don't want to repeat myself either from just a couple weeks ago, and so we have this as ising this concept of being able to duplicate a thing fully in its exact time, place, form uh, of it now. Right? If you can completely duplicate a thing, uh, then you can make it vanish. Right? It's gone. Uh, and uh, Batman reference there. Uh, so ownership means you created it. You own it. And remember what I talked about where you can say, oh, no, 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 somebody else did it. Hey, you did it. You did it. I don't own this. You own it. And that's the way to create a persistence. That's the way to keep it solid. That's the way to keep it around, make it permanent is you lie about it. You alter the isness of the thing. And so it's no longer its actual true form. It's an altered form simply by saying, Joe created it, not me. You are altering the truth of the thing. And that's what creates a persistence. This is all low, 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 basic level Scientology stuff. Um, it's not true in terms of, it's a, it's a philosophical principle that doesn't, uh, really work out at all in any kind of practical sense. And yet Hubbard uses this explanation to describe why it is that Scientology auditing works and how it is that a Thetan, a spiritual entity, can create or destroy things at will. Uh, is through as-isness and alter-isness. You as-is a thing, you create it, and then you alter it. And that's what creates permanency. It's a weird concept, and a lot of people have their, have a very difficult time getting their wits around it. I'm trying to explain it as simply and as basically as I can. Uh, Hubbard gives much more convoluted explanations of this, but at its at its core, it's really this kind of a simplicity, and that's why uh, solidity by misownership is just another way of saying you've assigned the ownership of a thing to somebody else. And therefore, you've altered it, and therefore, it becomes more, it becomes permanent. It becomes a solid thing. And that's, that's why all of this exists, according to L. Ron Hubbard, is because we're lying about all of this. Because we're the ones creating all of this together, collectively. Yeah, it's a little weird. Uh, but there you go. All right, and that is our show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for coming around and watching. I really appreciate your viewership and your support, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.